This episode is sponsored by Gene Rontel's thriller, A Pre-Existing Condition, which is available now, and the link is in the show notes. What if someone could tap into a patient's medical records for monetary gain? In the fast-paced medical mystery thriller, A Pre-Existing Condition, amateur police detective and doctor Benjamin Daly discovers a deadly plot to kill innocent people because of their underlying illnesses. With the help of a brave whistleblower and the victims running out of time, Daly must go to great lengths to ensure death and greed don't win. A pre-existing condition is for sale now on Amazon. This is the Thoughts from a Page podcast, where I interview authors about their latest works. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I love to talk about books. If you have any comments or feedback for me, feel free to contact me through my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. For more book recommendations, follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts From a Page and Twitter at Burn555555. Today, I am interviewing Ty Sejuli. Ty is a professor emeritus of history at West Point, where he taught for two decades. He served in the U.S. Army for 36 years, retiring as a brigadier general in 2020. He is the Chamberlain Fellow at Hamilton College, as well as a New American Fellow. He has published numerous books, articles, and videos on military history, including the award-winning West Point History of the Civil War. Ty graduated from Washington and Lee University and holds a PhD from The Ohio State University. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome, Ty. I am so excited that you are here to talk with me about Robert E. Lee and me. I think it is such a relevant topic, especially in light of what happened at the Capitol on January 6th. I'm looking forward to hearing about what you went through, your experiences, and what you think is going to happen going forward. So how are you today? Cindy, I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Can't wait to talk. Me too. Well, I usually have authors start out by talking a little bit about their books. So why don't we do that? Just give us a little quick synopsis. Sure. Well, I grew up in in Northern Virginia believing that Robert E. Lee was the greatest man ever, a great warrior and a great human. In fact, on a scale of one to 10, I probably would have put Lee at about 10.5. And even though I went to church every Sunday, I'd put Jesus at about five. He was a great man to me. And so I write about growing up with books, movies, every part of my cultural upbringing made him a great man. Finally, when I became a historian, years after becoming a historian, I really discovered that Lee, in fact, as I argue in the book, uh, committed treason, chose treason to preserve slavery. And I realized that I couldn't convince people using facts. So what I thought I'd do is use my own story, my entire life really, to show one, how my culture and I thought Lee was so great, and then to use the history to say, no, that isn't really true. And so the book is both a history, a memoir, a mea culpa, and maybe a little bit of a manifesto that we should rethink how we how we think of the Civil War and Robert E. Lee in particular. And I use my own life as a way to get at that story. Well, I guess my question for you is, do you feel that it makes a difference that you give your own kind of life story and explain you sort of grew up indoctrinated in Lee's greatness and kind of everything you describe in the book, and then you come around to this? I mean, do you think that impacts people when you tell your story? 
I think so. And, and let me give you an example of that. I'm a historian, so I can't tell anything without telling a story. I was at West Point. I was in charge of the memorialization committee. At West Point, we had this new memorial room that we were doing. We had lost 100 graduates killed in the war since 9-11. And, and West Point really wanted to recognize that we didn't have them all in any one room. So I had this idea that we would create one room and put all the 1,500 graduates that died from the War of 1812 through the Wars of 9-11. But there was this question, should we put Confederate names in there? And I argued, oh my gosh, did I argue that we shouldn't put them in. They committed treason. They killed U.S. Army soldiers. They fought against their country for the worst possible reason to create a slave republic. So I went and gave this argument and I couldn't convince anyone. They said, no, we should bring people together. And I said, no, they were they were traitors. I couldn't convince anyone. So I went to my wife and told her that night how frustrated I was. And she said, Ty, nobody understands why the subject's so important to you. And she was right. She was really right because I was hiding my own background. And then after that, I started to tell my story in a couple of different places. And finally, I felt like I could get people to accept the facts by being vulnerable myself and saying, listen, I believe this too. And here's the evidence as a historian. But to be vulnerable myself, I was able to convince more people more readily. And so I would have people come up after these lectures and they would sort of whisper to me, particularly men of a certain age, which is what I am, white men of a certain age, and say, I grew up believing that too. And so did I. And so did I. And so I do think that by not making it a normal history book, but by using a memoir, I'm able to convince people in a way that the, that the straight up facts just don't do. I have to say that is absolutely fascinating to me because we're here in the middle of a very, very divided country. Nobody's listening to anybody. Everybody's posting all these nasty rants on Facebook and Twitter and wherever else. And so I've thought a lot about how do you convince people that something is wrong? And so I guess as I was reading your book and you were talking about your wife feeling like if you were more personal about it, that people would come around. And that's just so interesting to me that, I mean, she was right. She hit the nail on the head. Cindy, she's the hero of this book. She really is. She has an uncanny ability to find the truth. And I don't because I grew up as a white Southerner in a culture filled with lies. And, and she didn't. She's a military brat. Her dad went to West Point, met her mom at a hop at a dance in 1949 on West Point. And, and so she grew up around the world and she really sees this for what it was. I didn't. And it took me years, decades before I could not only uh, find the evidence, which I did find, but then to actually be honest enough to tell my own story, ooh, that was that, that took some soul searching. And really, she's the one that helped me get there. Well, that is truly just so fascinating to me, as I said earlier, because it's what we need. So, I mean, you need to be out there not only on this issue, but on all of these other issues and telling people you need to do a TED Talk on Come From It Personally, because I do think if more people were doing what you're doing, if it's working, would be a great way to maybe get messages across, because what's happening now doesn't really seem to be working very well. No, it, it's not working. And and there, I think there is a, a need for people like me. And, and part of what I am, I'm a, I'm a retired Army Brigadier General who spent my career defending my country. And I have the, the American flag right here in my office, right next to me. And I'm a Southerner and I'm a white man. And there's a need for people who are in positions of power or had positions of power to speak honestly. And it's just something we, we have trouble doing. And of course, for me, one of the reasons I had to retire, I retired from the army. I love the army. I love serving my nation. I love being in uniform. But this subject was too hot for the army to talk about with me in uniform. So, so in fact, you know, I'm going to talk to CBS News tomorrow 
We can't do it on West Point because West Point is too cautious about what this means politically. Even just to say that Robert E. Lee committed treason to preserve slavery is a political act. And that's the thing, is that history is dangerous because it goes after our myths and our identities. And, and there is no such thing as apolitical history in a way. Just by saying the facts, by saying that, that what I consider to be the facts, I get people angry. And, and, and Sydney, I don't just get them angry. Like five years ago when I did this video saying that the Civil War is about slavery, people sent me death threats as an army colonel to my West Point email address saying that they were going to kill me. And I passed them on to the FBI because they felt so aggrieved that I would question their own identity. And that's why as a white Southern army officer, I feel not just the need, I feel compelled to tell as many people as possible what the facts are. And that, and again, I think that's the only way that we can get beyond where we are right now. Because the other thing about it is as even whenever we progress as a people, let's say Reconstruction, when we create the constitutional amendments that, that move toward equality or the civil rights movement, there is a backlash against it every time. And I think the only way through the backlash is more evidence, more history, so that we can try to get some agreed upon facts. And that's what I'm trying to do. Well, I have so many different thoughts on everything you just said, but I'm going to start with the, the most recent thing you just said, which was the backlash. And, and I had just read something about this recently, and then I saw it again in your book, that a number of these monuments went up in response to these various things, so that there weren't a lot of monuments right after the Civil War, but instead, in reaction to various other things, then there's kind of this whole rush to get a bunch more monuments up supporting the Civil War again, that it's kind of been this ongoing issue. And so that a lot of them are newer than you would think they would be. Well, and that's really what, what started my research is, is I, I looked at all the things named after Robert E. Lee at West Point. And I said, oh, they'll be, they, they came in 1870, right after he died. And, and West Point will bring them all together. They will overcome the bloodshed. Not true. In the 19th century, West Point banished the Confederates from their collective memory. None in our cemetery, none on, in our memorial hall, no Confederates on our big monument. And so as I looked at this, it turns out that Almost all the monuments in America come between 1890 and 1920, and that's the period when Jim Crow was solidified, the disenfranchisement of blacks, and the violent terror campaign that is lynching. I mean, about 5,000 black Americans were lynched during this period, and most of it is during that 1890 to 1920. So Confederate monuments during that period are another form of white supremacy. So you think of the white supremacist movement as being Confederate monuments, black disenfranchisement, violent terror to support white supremacy. And then the next group come after World War II when there is this move toward integration. So when Harry Truman does the Civil Rights Commission and we start the Civil Rights Movement, there is then a, another move toward Confederate monuments. So it's a reaction to integration. And a good example of that is a Georgia flag. So Georgia changes its flag to put the Confederate emblem on there in 1956. And they say they're doing it as a reaction to Brown versus the Board of Education and the forced integration of schools. So scratch a Confederate monument and you will find a reaction. You will find a, you will find either a supporting white supremacy and violent disenfranchisement of black people or a reaction against equal rights for black people. And I had read that, like I said, recently somewhere else, and then I saw it again in your book. And I thought that's just fascinating because if you were to ask me when were most of these monuments erected, I would have certainly thought right after the Civil War. So it's just kind of funny that that some of them were even 
in the middle of like the 1950s. That just seems very strange and so far removed from the war. But I guess that's the whole point of this story is that for some people, they're never far removed from the war. Again, if you think about what the Confederates were doing, it was to create a slave republic. That's why they went to war. And then afterwards, they created this thing called the Lost Cause. And the Lost Cause is a ideology that says the war wasn't about slavery. It was about states' rights. Reconstruction, which was a failure because black people were not ready for the vote and for high office. And Lee was the greatest soldier ever. And the South lost because the North were, were butchers. And all of that is meant to support white supremacy. That's what it does. And the monuments are a physical manifestation of white supremacy then and now. I had never heard of the lost cause of the Confederacy or had not stuck with me if I had come across that phrase before. And I was asking my husband the same thing last night because I was reviewing your book before today. And I was like, I mean, I've heard of portions of the lost cause. I mean, the state's rights and some of the various things you were saying, but I had never heard it called that. It's because for, for many of us in the South, it's an ideology, it's a, it's a belief system without having a name. So it starts out in, in really the before the smoke has cleared the battlefield, uh, Robert E. Lee starts the lost cause by saying that he lost only to greater manpower, material, and this, this butchery of the, of the North. And it's not true. There are many a smaller power that beats a Northern power. And we can go into lots of reasons why the North defeated the South, or as I don't even like to call it the North, I like to say it's the United States of America. It's the United States Army that defeated a rebel and insurrectionist force. But if you think about all these, they, they create this myth. I mean, the South is absolutely devastated by this war. They sow the wind by going to war to protect slavery, and they reap the whirlwind by having the destruction of the South and then an equal rights for, for Black America. I mean, this was the 180 degrees from what they wanted. So how are they going to deal with this catastrophic defeat? Well, they create a myth. And, and Robert E. Lee is sort of the, the, the height of that myth. He is the, the marble man, the, the greatest exemplar of Christian gentlemen. But there are a bunch of different belief systems. And then that is enforced by groups, particularly women's groups, like the United Daughters of the Confederacy, which burn books, which enforce this way of thinking to ensure that kids growing up in the South have this belief system, which is what I did. In fact, even to this day, the United Daughters of the Confederacy have something called the Confederate Catechism, which you, you memorize. And if you memorize these, I don't know, eight or 10 points, which is the lost cause myth, then you can win scholarships. So it's still there today of enforcing a certain vision of defeat and a vision of white supremacy that I'm trying to go after in this book. I grew up, well, I grew up all over, but I lived in Texas and then I lived in New York and then I lived in Brazil and then I lived in Texas again. And then I went to school in Illinois and North Carolina. So I've kind of been a variety of places, but I went to high school in Texas, Houston. So, you know, fourth largest city. I don't ever feel like I learned any of that from that perspective. Like I always felt like it was the civil war and the North won as they should have. I guess I just didn't I didn't have any of that. And so I think if you had told me five years ago that people were still this entrenched in the Civil War and their feelings, I would have said you were crazy. But after the last four years have unfolded, I definitely see you were right. And then, of course, last week, where almost as I was reading your book, I was like, oh, my gosh, the parallels. So I, I don't know. It's just where do we go from here? Well, I mean, there was no doubt that the insurrectionists, the seditionists that were that attacked our capital laid bare that we have a couple of things. One, we are a violent people. 
we're a politically violent people. This is not anything new that we have political violence in this country. It goes back a, a long, long way. One of the reasons the Constitution came to be was that the Articles of Confederation had no way to put down rebellions. And the first rebellion that occurs after the Constitution happens, George Washington puts back on his blue, President Washington puts back on his blue uniform and takes the entire United States Army and moves into Western Pennsylvania to put down the Whiskey Rebellion because he says we shall not have rebellion. And we have a a number of rebellions of political violence throughout. So we've always had that. What we've never had is a president that has actually incited that before. That, that's, that is something new. But, but I think, I mean, there are so many things that the country needs to do. But one of which is, is to make sure we understand why we are like we are. And a lot of it is that we have a, a white supremacist past. And if we could just admit that, we, we come a long way. Because you can't have justice, you can't have reconciliation without truth. And the truth is what we have to have. And growing up in Texas, I mean, the thing is, Texas was a slave state. Often it says that we're the Lone Star State. Remember, it was a slave state. And if you go to Austin and look at the Capitol there, you'll see all of the, 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 the monuments there to the Confederacy, which support the lost cause myth more clearly than almost any other state capital. You have the monument to Lee that was just recently taken down in Dallas that was put up by FDR and who said that Lee was the greatest gentleman that ever lived. So what we need to do, I think, is go back and look at our history and make sure that my grandkids, I don't have them yet, but I'm working on it, that they don't grow up with the same lies. And the state of Texas and the, and your kids don't grow up with the same lies that I did. And that's what I'm trying to do in any forum I can. And throughout the South, the school systems are usually very segregated, uh, created that way. Like I went to high school in a segregation academy. This was in Monroe, Georgia. Much of our school system is created to be segregated. Our housing, you, I mean, if you just, if it, what needs to be is to just go beyond the facts and look at the effects of the Civil War and white supremacy. Every town has got a history that could mirror what I talk about in the places that I live. Dallas, Houston, Austin, all of them. And, and not just in the South, but in every city. And I think we just have to more, more locally understand what those histories are. And it makes us look bad, but that's okay. We Americans are not made out of cotton candy. I mean, we can handle it. And, and, I, and I don't want you to think that I'm thinking that we are some we are not going to solve this problem because we're Americans. We can solve any problem we want to as long as we're honest about it. But we have to look at the at the at the results of the Civil War and segregation, which is that black families have one tenth the wealth of white families. And there's a reason for this. It's not it's a reason is, is that both enslavement and and Jim Crow segregation has created a two-tier system in this country, and and that can't last. We have to understand why we are like we are. I agree completely. I guess I just was sort of trying to figure out how, I, I hear what you're saying, but exactly how that would be implemented. And it's it's easier with younger people because I think they're more impressionable. So yes, you can, you can revamp education systems. But what do you do about these people that storm the Capitol? I mean, how do you change their minds? Well, I tell you, from this soldier, you put them in jail. If you storm the Capitol, you're an insurrectionist. You're trying to overthrow the government. And I think in that case, one of the things that we did after the Civil War was that we pardoned and gave amnesty to everybody. There was one person who was hanged after the Civil War, and that was the uh, head of the Andersonville prison. And other than that, we, we pretty much said, listen, go about and live your life. And what it led to 
was violent terror because the the people who in the who fought the civil war would not accept the results of that war and slaughtered thousands of black people in the south until they gained political power by after the end of reconstruction so part of this is is that we can accept free speech we can accept protest but we cannot shall not should prosecute to the full extent of the law anybody who went in that capital or thinks that we should overthrow a free and fair election. And the thing about it is that people get, they, they believe this thoroughly. I mean, it becomes a moral issue, just like it was for slavery. So in fact, people that believed in slavery thought it was a moral argument for slavery prior to and during the Civil War. And we just have to, t- some people just have to be, they have to be arrested and jailed if they believe in the violent overthrow of this country. Oh, I'm all for that. And I'm very happy to see that the FBI has been on the news saying we are actively searching for all of these people. They will be trying them, the ones that that were in the building and waving weapons and whatever else they were doing. But I guess I just think you probably aren't changing some of those people's minds, whether they go to jail or not. And you just think there's got to be some way for people to understand a little bit more. And maybe it's it's by things like you're doing, where you're talking about your own story and other people continue to do that and eventually more people understand. The moral part of it is always completely mind-boggling to me. And that's what has been so frustrating to me the last four years. The things that come out of Trump's mouth sometimes are just horrifying. And I've just not understood how other people don't think that too. But clearly both sides think they're the moral side. Yeah. Well, one of the great things about no longer being in the army is the exercise of my First Amendment right. And I have thoroughly enjoyed using my First Amendment right in op-eds with you. And I can say that what the president has said after Charlottesville was just despicable. The thing that there are good people on both sides. No, no. There are some things that are clearly moral and Nazis and Confederates are wrong. When you when you fight, when you say that somebody who has a race based system, that is wrong. Telling people to go go and march on the Capitol for wild things happening. That's that is incitement to insurrection. It's wrong. And we have to be able to say that some things are beyond the pale. And that's beyond the pale. It is beyond the pale to have violence in our system. We cannot tolerate that as a society. And and it's just wrong. And and I will say it now that I can say it. The only reason I got out of the Army is I can't say that in the Army. We have Article 88 of the Uniform Code of Military Justice, which says that officers cannot disparage elected officials. And it's a good art. It's a good thing to have. There's a reason for that. But now here with you, Cindy, I am going to exercise that First Amendment fully. Well, I'm happy to hear that. You mentioned earlier the flag. My husband would laugh. I was thinking as soon as you mentioned it, because that's one of the things that just makes me so mad that somehow the flag has been co-opted by Republicans. And I mean, Republicans are entitled to the flag, but so are Democrats. We're all Americans. So like I had my Biden sign out and I had the flags taped behind it. And I'm like, I have every right to have the flag too. And I don't understand how that suddenly became patriotic and flag waving is suddenly a conservative thing. It's so strange to me. I couldn't agree with you more. So anyway, when I sit here and call Lee a traitor for slavery, when I say something about the insurrectionists do that, my head is framed by the American flag. I, I'm with you. I am. I, I served my country for nearly 36 years, gone to war for my country. I believe firmly in this. I, I'm a patriot, but a patriot must be able to criticize this country. 
and criticize it in a way that is thinking that trying to get better. But that does not mean that you are that one, you are denigrating people because of their race, because of their gender, because of their sexuality, the cruelty of people wrapping themselves in the flag and telling that other people are less American because they want to bring more people into the country or they don't they just don't have this cruelty is just mind boggling to me. So I'm with you. I wrap myself in the flag as a pay, as an American patriot. And I think it was interesting that with those insurrectionists, that they took the American flag down and put the Trump flag up. Did you see that? Yes. And I saw several people posting about that. I don't think I had actually noticed it when it happened, but then I saw people posting about it and I went back and looked at the photos. And yes, it's a very interesting point. And we're waving all those Confederate flags, which I want to talk a little bit about in a minute too, because I didn't realize that the current Confederate flag was actually the battle flag. And I'd love to talk a little bit about that. But I did notice that. It was very, very interesting. Yeah. So the, the flag, I mean, there have been um, there are several Confederate flags, the stars and bars, which is very much like the Georgia flag to this day, looks like the stars and bars. So most of the uh, southern state flags, except Mississippi was just changed, have some linkage in some way to the Confederate flag. It's like that four year period was the one that they really want to want to highlight. So that was the first Confederate flag. The second Confederate flag has what we think of as the Confederate flag today in the corner. The rest of it was all white. And it was all white because they were fighting for the white people of the South. It was a white supremacist flag. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's what it was. That was the second flag and really the one used for most of the war. So that's the one they should put bring up is this white supremacy. And that's what they said. They said this represents who we are. Now, of course, the problem of going into battle with a white flag is twofold. First, it looks like the surrender flag. That's not really good. And the second is the second part is, is that white flags don't do well in a muddy campaign. <laughs> yeah, That's what I was thinking as a mom of a son who plays baseball and all I ever do is wash all his baseball pants. As soon as I hear white and that kind of thing, I'm like, oh, it's going to get dirty. It's exactly. So then they put the last one, they put a red stain banner. They call it the sta- red stain banner, a blood stain banner. So they put a little uh, end, on the end of the flag, a, a red stripe. But the one that, and that was just for the last couple of months of the war, but the one that the Army of Northern Virginia, that's Robert E. Lee's army, the one that they had was what we think of today as the Confederate flag. But really, it wasn't until after World War II that most people started using that. And so one historian has argued that more people used the Confederate flag from 1946 to 1970s than ever fought for it under the Confederacy. And the reason is it came to represent white supremacy. And that's what that flag means today is white supremacy. So when I saw that Confederate flag desecrating the U.S. Capitol next to the picture of Charles Sumner, who was the leading abolitionist and who, in fact, who wrote the oath that everyone in that Congress took, that I took, the oath is an 1862 oath meant to ferret out Confederates. So when it says support and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic, who are domestic enemies? It's the Confederates. So that's what the oath that we all take is directly linked to the Civil War. And so when I saw that flag go in there, I mean, I was boiling mad to see the desecration. Uh, They didn't get that Confederate flag in there in 1861. And now they have it in there now. Shame on them. Absolutely. And I just, I didn't realize that that flag was really the battle flag. It's never actually representative of the Confederate government. And so that was just fascinating to me. Yeah, and I think the the interesting point about that is, is again, what's the purpose of the flag? And it was chosen first by the the United Confederate Veterans in the late 1890s. It was put on the Mississippi flag, which just came off in 1894, I think. The Georgia flag on 1956, 
it is a it is a white it is there for white supremacy. We we just can't ever forget that. The fact that Georgia and a few of these states didn't make those changes till the 1950s again just seems very baffling to me that that that's becoming an issue then versus right after the war. It's like you said earlier, there's four years that they can't all seem to forget. Right, but we got to remember that the South was a racial police state. Let me say that again. The South was a racial police state, an apartheid state, because there was only only white people could vote. And that meant that like in Mississippi and South Carolina, which were majority black, only white people could vote. And, and they, they got that through terror. And that meant that the people that were in power for the longest period had to maintain that power by disenfranchising blacks through violence and through law. When they, that started to unravel with Supreme Court decisions and by the Truman administration and the civil rights movement, they were going to lose political power. And that's the thing to remember is that white supremacy is about white political power, particularly in the South, but elsewhere as well. And and the flag is then a, a way of, of rallying white people to say, if you do equal rights, they're going to gain, they, black people are going to gain political power and you're going to lose it. Right. And that instead of, it's all like a pieces of a pie. Instead of the more people that are included, the greater the group grows. Instead, they view it like, okay, it's a pie. And so if your slice gets bigger, my slice gets smaller. And they lose political power. So in the state of Virginia, they do massive resistance. That's in the 1950s and and 60s to prevent black people from getting political power. That's what's so amazing about Virginia now. Virginia is really leading the country in coming to grips with this lost cause heritage by taking statues down, changing education, working to make a more fair system for all. And I couldn't be more proud of my home state, but that is not the case in many other Southern states. Well, yes, at the moment, Texas does not have any kind of government that's going to be leading the charge for that, sadly. No, Texas absolutely doesn't. And again, it goes back, many Texans think of themselves as this Lone Star state that that small time they were a republic, but they should remember that they went to war to maintain slavery. Texas is a slave state and it was a big slave state. It was taking many of the enslaved people from Virginia and putting them on these new cotton plantations, or as I I like to call not plantation, but enslaved labor farm in Texas. So all you have to do is look at the history of Texas to realize the white supremacy, the lynching, and the terrible treatment of black people in that state. Oh, absolutely. And I wouldn't argue about that at all. No, I know we were a slave state and that the racism is is certainly a problem that is still very prevalent. I guess we just didn't spend as much time focused on it as it sounded like maybe you did in Virginia. That's all I was saying was that it was not something that I felt like was entrenched in my education at all. Like I didn't come out of it thinking Lee was a big hero or any of that. I mean, I, I think we more learned the union won and that's the way it should be kind of thing. Yeah, and I think that's true. But I think one of the things that we have to do in our education is spend more time being uncomfortable. I, I'm comfortable now being uncomfortable. Let me tell you, I have no problem being uncomfortable about race. So we do tell that story. So we celebrate the first African-American general officer in the army. We celebrate the first black person to graduate from the University of Texas. We celebrate this and that. But we don't tell, talk the story about why do they need to celebrate this? But the reason for this is, the reason there is a Black History Month is because it was completely excluded from the American story. And it's only recently, and that's one of the reasons why people are so upset now, because they tell me all the time, Ty, you're trying to change history. I'm not trying to change history. I'm being more inclusive and telling more of these stories. And, And I think more of our communities need to tell these stories and not focus 
on this one four-year period and then make one group that I think were, were morally moral reprobates the heroes. We need to look at heroes that are from the black community that fought this successfully, but we need to talk about the white people that forced them to fight. Absolutely. History is told by the victors and often by the people in power. And so, I mean, I, I focus a lot on historical fiction, and there's been a big push in the last couple of years for more of these stories about strong women that, you know, people have never heard of. Their stories still haven't been told, and often men would have, would take responsibility or honor for what these women had created. And so it's interesting. I just think an overhaul of our history and what really happened versus what we're told all the way around would be very effective. And same for Native Americans. I mean, I think that generally an overhaul and what really happened versus what we're told happened would be very helpful. I grew up wanting to be an educated Virginia gentleman, but gentleman is a hierarchical term too. And it is a fraught thing. I try not to use it anymore because even when you say ladies and gentlemen, it, there's, there's an entire structure there that well, we, we could do with some unpacking there too. Yeah. No, I just think, and I think we're starting to head in this direction on, on many of these fronts. Change is very hard. I totally get that. But I do think it's interesting to see it all starting to unfold in, in several different venues and regarding different groups of people. I think you're absolutely right. And we're, we, can't, we can do this. And, and I think we've been doing this for a while. One of the things that's interesting is I think historians have been really doing this for almost 50 years, certainly 40 years, but it's only now starting to seep into the culture. And, and I think that's great. And that's one of the ro roles historians have to do is not just write for each other, but write for a public audience. And, and I think they're doing that. I think historians are doing a really good job of putting our current moment into focus uh, in a variety of different ways. And, and that's what we need to do. We need to have uh, public intellectuals talking about this subject over and over and over again, not once, not twice, but again and again. I think you're right, because I think you can hear it in different ways, even like you talked about earlier, the way the message is presented or who it's coming from. So I agree. As long as it's talked about over and over again, then eventually it's going to hopefully reach many more people. Well, I could talk for hours with you about this, but I'm certain you don't have that time. Before we wrap up, I would love to hear what you have read recently that you liked, whether it's related to this subject or, or not. So I'd like to tell you about three books. Uh, the first one is called The False Cause, Fraud, Fabrication, and White Supremacy in Confederate Memory. It's by Adam Dombey, a good friend of mine. The second book is the best biography of Robert E. Lee, and it's called Reading the Man, a portrait of Robert E. Lee through his private letters. Really excellent. And the third book is one that just came out that I'm reading right now, and it's about St. Louis, and it's called The Broken Heart of America, St. Louis and the Violent History of the United States. And I think those three books are what I've been reading of late, but boy, there are so many great ones out here. And I know you have so many great authors on your podcast as well, Cindy. My list just grows and grows and grows. The one I was hoping you might mention, and you mentioned it in your book, was Confederates in the Attic. I read that book r right around the time it came out, and I absolutely loved it. But I feel like I probably need to get it out again because I enjoyed his portrayal of these kind of recreators, and it just all seemed insane to me. But after living the last four years, I'm thinking I probably would read it through a different lens now. I think I'd probably learn a lot if I read it again, and I was happy that you referenced it in your book. It's, it's a brilliant book. And this coming semester in my course, it's one of the assigned books. So yeah, no, it's a, it's a brilliant book. And my favorite story there is The Bloater. I don't know if you remember that, but there is a, a reenactor whose specialty is being a bloated corpse. He reenacts the Civil War and he's a Confederate, a dead Confederate, and he somehow contorts his body 
to look like it's been bloated after three days. Okay, that's hilarious. No, I don't remember. But I mean, I can't remember when that book came out, but it was like maybe the 90s. I mean, it was a while ago. It was. It was 99. Okay, yeah. So it's been a while since I read it, but I need to get it back out and read it again. And I was so sad when he passed away. Was it last year, I think? It was last year. In fact, uh, he had just come to West Point to give a, a book talk and and passed away right at the age of 61, I think. I mean, what a what a tragedy because he is that writes, I mean, he just writes so well. Oh my gosh. There are a couple people like that. That, that There's another book, uh, Rick Atkinson, who has a book now on the American Revolution that I just read, also just writes like an angel. You know, you read a sentence and you just go, oh, how wonderful. Well, I really enjoyed your book and I felt like it was not dry at all. I mean, you know, sometimes nonfiction can be, it just depends on the book. But I mean, I just was paging through it and I was constantly saying to my husband, did you know this? Did you know that? Because we usually read at night before we go to bed and I, he was like, will you please stop reading all of it to me? I'll just read it when you're done. But I just thought it was fabulous. So, and I, I know we've gone a long time. So, but I really, really appreciate your time, Ty. And thank you so much for coming on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. Oh, Cindy, I had a blast. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you like this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram and Pinterest at Thoughts From A Page. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. Ty's book can be purchased at Murder by the Book, where I work part-time, and the link is in the show notes. Thanks so much to Jean Rontel and A Pre-Existing Condition for sponsoring this episode. Thanks to KP Regan for the sound editing, and I hope you'll tune in next time. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased, and essential world news daily.